When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. I want to send a few special thank yous to some people today. I want to start with Whitney from Colts Crimes Cabernet. She heard I was having a, I don't want to say a hard time. I was just having a lifetime, a rocky time. Things were happening in my life, good and bad, all at once. An overwhelming time, let's put it that way. And she sent me a very nice gift card to help cover some dinner for my family, give me a night off. And I also want to thank some listeners who have also been so generous in donating to my coffee fund. Some of them sent me enough for coffee. Some of them sent me enough for a lot of coffee. So I want to say a very special thank you to Dan, Reva, Julie, Karen, Bonnie, and Sheila. Thank you so much for your support. In 2011, a murder shocked St. John, New Brunswick, when a prominent citizen was killed in his office. Though the police zeroed in on a suspect quickly, it would take years to build the case against him. But he would argue that they zeroed in on him too quickly and let the real killer get away. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to Crime Lines. I want to say it was so great meeting people at the True Crime Podcast Festival. Next year, it will be rebranding to the True Crime and Paranormal Festival as it expands to some paranormal shows. As we know, paranormal shows often have crossovers with true crime. It will be in late August in Austin, Texas, which is a city I've always wanted to go to. And yes, I already have my ticket. Also, last chance to grab a virtual ticket to the Gen Y live show for September 8th. You can watch it from the comfort of your home. I am going to be running a trivia game to see how well the guests know Aaron and Justin and how well Aaron and Justin remember the topics they've covered over the last 10 years of podcasting. It's going to be an amazing event and totally worth it. And that'll round out a very busy 12 months of travel and meetups before I hibernate for the winter. But you can always catch me weekly here on the podcast, and this week you're going to catch me twice. This is going to be a two-parter. Once an episode goes over the 90-minute mark, I just have to split it in two to make it more manageable on the production side. Patreon and Apple subscribers will have part two right away, and everyone else will get it on Thursday. A huge thank you goes to Christy from Canadian True Crime for her research on this case. It was great to work with her on this, and this is a case she has covered as well. And if you think I'm detailed, Christy blows me out of the water every time. She covered this case in three parts, with a play-by-play of the investigation and the legal battles. Her coverage is more like a true crime book than a podcast, so I really hope you go check it out. The main sources used were CBC New Brunswick, The Telegraph Journal, CTV Atlantic, The Canadian Press, and Bobby Jean McKinnon's best-selling book, 
Shadow of Doubt. This case takes place in St. John, New Brunswick, which is a place I actually have a family connection to. This isn't the sort of thing I usually bring up in episodes, but I do know I have some history fans in my audience, and I thought you might find it interesting. We all know that after the American Revolution, the country was free from British rule. But not all of the colonists wanted that. There were those who were still loyal to the crown, and they were called Loyalists or Tories. We learn that much in American history class, but what happened to them after the revolution? Some of them shrugged their shoulders and moved on in what is now the United States, but some took land grants in Canada, primarily in what is now St. John, New Brunswick. My ancestors on my paternal grandmother's side were among those who left the U.S. for New Brunswick to stay under British rule. And then about 100 years later, they crossed the street back into Maine. I mean, that is pretty much how immigration up there worked around the turn of the 20th century. These land grants in New Brunswick also shifted the demographics of the area from predominantly French-speaking to predominantly English-speaking. Though French is still very prominent in New Brunswick, with about 32% of the population speaking French as their first language. My family ended up there in the 1780s, and I won't say they were necessarily very influential in the area other than being yet another English-speaking family. But we are going to talk about a family that was influential on St. John. When Susanna Oland arrived in Canada from England in the 1860s, she brought with her her homebrew recipe. In 1867, she founded a brewery business that passed down the generations. It is now called Moosehead Breweries, And according to their website, they're the last independently owned brewery in Canada, and they are still run by descendants of Susanna Oland. They are six generations down. In 1941, Richard Oland was born into this well-known family and grew up in the suburb of Rosse. It's just about 10 to 15 minutes outside of St. John. Richard had a comfortable upbringing, financially speaking. He went to private schools, and he had a university education. When Richard was in his early 20s, he began dating a 16-year-old named Connie. The two married in 1965 and had three children together, two daughters named Lisa and Jacqueline, and a son named Dennis. Richard went into the Oland family business at the brewery, and he spent a lot of his time there. When he did take time for hobbies, it was usually sailing, and it was something he shared with his children. They knew that they had his attention when they were out on the water together, but frankly, they didn't often have it otherwise. Richard was mostly focused on his career. In the early 1980s, Richard was working as a vice president at Moosehead Breweries. The family had hoped that, like the generations of Olins before them, Richard and his brother Derek would become a solid team as far as the leadership went. It didn't end up working out that way as both of them had their eyes set at the top position in the company. 
Neither seemed willing to work under the other one, and their professional competitiveness turned personal. There seemed there would only be room enough on the executive level for one ambitious brother. Feeling that Richard was too inexperienced to be president ahead of Derek, who was older, their father put Derek in as the executive vice president, and the message was clear. Derek was going to be the next president of the company. That didn't sit right with Richard, and in 1981, he left the family business. He moved his focus over to a trucking business they had on the side, and over the years, he would run multiple companies in a variety of fields. He worked long hours, and it paid off financially. It also paid off in the community. The growth made him an admired businessman who was also generous to a number of charities. But this case reminds me of the Barry and Honey Sherman case, which I covered in December 2020. So many people saw Barry Sherman as a sharp businessman who was as generous as he was ambitious. But others saw him as more cunning and ruthless than that. It seems the views on Richard Oland were similar in that your view of him would depend on where and when you encountered him. When he was donating to your charity, you would see him as generous. But if you were a mechanic with his trucking company who didn't get paid or you had been the beneficiary of funding that he cut off, you might not see him quite that way. Even his wife and children would describe him as someone who was difficult to get along with all of the time. After doing research on this, Christy from Canadian True Crime settled on challenging personality to describe Richard Oland, and I think it absolutely fits. That wasn't just in the workplace either. It extended into his family and personal life. In 1996, Richard's father died. While all three of his children inherited personally, he set up their inherited shares in the family business based on how much they contributed to the business over the years. He didn't just give them all 33%. Instead, Derek, who was set to become president, got 53%. Richard got 33 and their sister got 14 Richard got a full third, which was what he would have gotten in a straight split. Derek's extra amount seems to have come from their sister's third. But Richard was still not happy with the divided shares and the income he was making from them, so he did bring his brother to court over it twice, and eventually Derek settled with both of his siblings and bought out their shares in the business in 2007. At this point, Richard Oland was an incredibly wealthy man, but regardless of how much money he had, he wanted to be in control of it. Richard had his wife Connie on an allowance for household expenses, but he wouldn't give her the money up front. She had to provide receipts and then get reimbursement that she would then use for the next month. Then she would save up those receipts and so on and so on. It wasn't enough that she just stayed within Richard's budget. 
He wanted to know exactly what was spent to the penny and on what. As for how Richard treated his wife and children otherwise, it really wasn't unlike how business associates saw him. Connie did characterize Richard as verbally abusive, but she gave him some grace, saying that he didn't seem to register how his criticisms impacted those around him. He didn't see the power of his words. She believed that he was shaped by his own upbringing with a strict father who parented through put-downs. Connie said that a clinical psychologist diagnosed Richard as being on the autism spectrum, and she said the family had learned how to interact with Richard in a way that best accommodated him. And sometimes that meant keeping their distance from him when he was not being kind. I do want to note that the psychologist was a family friend, so it's unclear to me if this diagnosis was after evaluation or if this friend was just trying to give some informal information that might help Connie understand Richard better. And it does seem like this helped because Connie did give him a lot of grace for his actions and his reactions. Richard became more distant with his family in the aftermath of leaving the family business. The loss of that position and his future there really deflated him. He threw himself into developing these other businesses. At the time he left the company in the early 1980s, his youngest child, Dennis, was just entering his teen years. And while Richard had high expectations for all of his children, his son Dennis seemed to have it a little harder than his sister's. It may be because he was a boy. Maybe it was because he was hitting those teen years while Richard was also dealing with his own complicated feelings over leaving the family business. Maybe it was something else. It's probably a combination of things. In most families, Dennis would be seen as doing well. He did well in school, he went to the same university as his father, and he graduated with a B average. Now, the B average was a bit of a carrot-on-the-stick situation. Richard promised to buy him a car if he kept his grades up after he had a not-so-hot semester. And Dennis managed to do it. So Dennis was the kind of person who could be motivated to do better when the situation called for it. But getting his father's approval wasn't so easily done. After he graduated, with Richard's encouragement, Dennis decided to move to Toronto to work as an investment advisor. Richard was supportive of this, it seemed, so much so that he was one of Dennis's first clients. But instead of being the proud father client, he was demanding and bossy likely more so because Dennis was his son. Rather than trust Dennis to know what he was doing as an investment advisor, Richard would call with his own thoughts and opinions and even flat-out orders for Dennis. Investment advisors are meant to work for their clients, but not quite this literally. 
Eventually, Dennis set up a second phone line in his office just for his father's calls because they came in that frequently. Dennis only stayed in Toronto for a few years, moving back to St. John in 94 or 95. He initially lived at home, but after he married, he and his new wife moved into another Oland family property. Dennis and his wife had three children together before they separated. The pending divorce complicated things for Dennis financially. The house they lived in, which was in the family for seven decades, was part of his intended inheritance. But with a divorce, Dennis worried the division of assets would force a sale of the property. While he was paying $4,000 a month in child support, he didn't also have enough on hand to buy out his wife's interests in the estate. Richard found out what was going on, and he loaned Dennis over $500,000 to settle things in a way that preserved the family property. The two came up with a repayment plan, which had Dennis paying back $1,600 a month on the interest for the loan, and the principal would come out of Dennis's inheritance down the line. Otherwise, had Dennis had to pay the interest and the principal back, the payments would have been more than he could easily afford. It helped that Richard was worth around $37 million, so it's not like there wouldn't be plenty of inheritance left, even after deducting the principal of the loan. Dennis remarried in 2009 and continued to live on the family property with his second wife, his stepson, and his own children during his parenting time, and all of this was thanks to his father's help. Richard was, at the time, running a business called the Far End Corporation, which was an investment company. He rented second-floor office space in Uptown St. John. Below his office was a print shop that was owned by the owner of the building. In the summer of 2011, Richard was enjoying both business, family, and hobbies. Connie described it as a pleasant time for the family. Richard had time to go sailing, and he and his son Dennis were working on a family history project together. They had also recently celebrated the 100th birthday of one of Connie's cousins, which Richard made it a point to be home for. On the morning of July 6th, 2011, Richard had a slow start to his day. He was at home with Connie until his secretary called him at 9.50. He had a 10 o'clock appointment and she wanted to make sure he was in the office for it. From there, Richard had a typical day at the office, taking meetings and keeping himself busy. At lunchtime, he sent his longtime secretary, Maureen, out to pick up some pizza for him while he kept working. His last meeting for the day ended a bit before 5.30. Maureen was then packing up to leave herself when Richard's son, Dennis, came into the office. Dennis had some family history documents he wanted to show his dad, and he was also supposed to pick something up. Leaving them to it, Maureen headed home. Music. 
Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. The next morning, on July 7th, Maureen showed up to work a little before 9. That was the usual routine. Maureen would get there first, unlock everything, and get the office ready for the day. When she went to head up to the second floor, she found the exterior door was already unlocked, so it seemed like someone had come in earlier than she had. That would occasionally happen depending on people's meeting schedules. When Maureen got up to the second floor, she found the first door she encountered to the office open, which was uncommon. It stayed closed even when people were there. But she went in and found the door that led directly into the Far End Corporation offices, and that door was closed. She pulled out her keys and used them to unlock the door. That doesn't mean the door was locked. Maureen just always needed to unlock it, so she did it automatically, and later she wasn't 100% clear if it was actually locked or not. When she walked in the room, it was chilly with the AC running high, and the lights were already on. Maureen also smelled what she later called a vile odor, and she wondered what was going on. She had carried in some Tim Hortons coffees, so she put the tray down on the conference table that was in the middle of the room. Then she noticed, to the side of the table, two legs on the floor. Between the smell and someone clearly lying out on the floor, Maureen panicked and ran out of the office to get help. She went to the printing store below and asked someone to come help her upstairs. So Maureen and the print shop employee went back up to the office, and the employee called 911 after seeing blood. First responders arrived and found 69-year-old Richard Oland face down in his office, having suffered a brutal attack. And by brutal, I mean there were at least 45 wounds to his neck, head, and hands. Richard may have been upright when the attack began, but much of it happened while he was vulnerable on the ground. There were both sharp and blunt force trauma wounds, resulting in 14 skull fractures. There were five distinct round head wounds with a cross-hatch pattern. The wounds on Richard's hands appeared to be defensive wounds. As you would assume, there was blood spatter pretty much everywhere. And there were no wipe marks. It didn't look like anyone attempted to clean up anything. But what's really curious was that there were no signs of a cleanup in the bathroom attached to the office either. Whoever carried out this murder would have been covered in blood. And I wouldn't have been surprised to see that they at least 
tried to wash up a little bit in the nearby bathroom like we've seen in other cases, but in this case, they didn't. There were also no signs of a burglary. Richard's Rolex was there, as was his wallet, cash he had in an envelope, and his electronic devices. Everything except his iPhone was accounted for. Maureen told the police about the last time she saw Richard. He was in his office going over family history documents with his son, Dennis. So when the family was notified of Richard's death by the police later that day and initially interviewed, they were not told what happened, just that Richard had died. Connie and all three of their adult children, Lisa, Jacqueline, and Dennis, all gave formal statements without knowing what happened or why the police were involved. Connie told the police that Richard hadn't come home from the office the night before, but she didn't think anything of it since he would work late frequently. She also thought he may have had a meeting in another town, and if it went late, he may have just gotten a hotel room. The police asked about any conflicts Richard had, and his daughter Jacqueline told them that Richard was someone who could be difficult, and some people got along with him and some didn't. His other daughter Lisa told them that pretty much anyone could have been Richard's enemy. He was, in her words, pure business. As for tension within the family, Jacqueline told them that Dennis did try to earn Richard's respect and struggled to live up to Richard's high standards. And Connie didn't disagree with her, but she also told the police that Dennis never would have harmed Richard and that he was a gentle person. But even without knowing about Dennis and Richard's relationship, obviously the police wanted to get a full accounting of his movements. When Richard was last seen alive, Dennis was the only other person with him. Dennis first gave a written timeline of his movements from the day before to the police, and then they sat down and went over it in detail. Dennis said that he left work and first arrived at Richard's office around 5.15 with some genealogy documents he wanted to show his father. He was on his way to the second floor when he realized he had forgotten something at work. His office was nearby, so he headed in that direction. As Dennis drove back to his office, he realized he didn't have the after-hours pass on him that was needed to access the elevator. He wouldn't be able to get back into the building, but he figured that was fine. He didn't really need whatever it was he forgot. So he headed back to his father's office, and he parked in a different place than he had originally parked. He arrived around 5.30 this time, and his story was the same as Maureen's. He went into his father's office, and they were discussing an 1825 family will that he had found. Dennis said he stayed about an hour and left around 6.30. He was leaving when his wife, Lisa, called. She wasn't feeling well and was wondering where he was. She expressed that she wanted him to come home right away. 
A check of the phone records would show that Lisa made this call at 6.36. Dennis then headed home, but first he stopped at a place on the way called Renforth Wharf. It was his ex-wife's week with their kids, but they would frequently be down there swimming on summer evenings, so he stopped by to see if they were there. It would just be a chance to get midweek hugs from them. When they weren't there, he headed home, arriving around 7. Dennis said when he got home, he didn't see his wife Lisa at first, so he went upstairs to change and then went back downstairs to talk to Lisa. Lisa was angry with him that he hadn't come home right away like she had hoped he would since she was sick. He told her that he had stopped at his father's office, but didn't mention going to the wharf after her call since she was already angry enough at him. The two then ran errands to the supermarket and drugstore before they went back home for dinner. All of Dennis's points on his timeline for the rest of the night have him with Lisa, except when he ran back to the store to pick up some milk, and then when he was in the backyard putting their chickens in the coop for the night and doing some light yard work. But none of these periods were long enough for him to get back to his father's office and then home. The couple then went to bed around 11.30. With the timeline established, the interview then turned to Dennis's relationship with his father, during which he admitted Richard wasn't the easiest person to get along with. He said Richard wasn't entirely unreasonable, but that it was often easier to just keep some distance because it kept the peace. Even when they got together for family dinners and events, It could turn unpleasant if things didn't go the way Richard expected. But Dennis seemed, much like his mother Connie, to chalk some of this up to Richard being on the autism spectrum and also how Richard's father had treated him as a child. The one thing the two really connected on was their shared love of genealogical research, so that's what Dennis focused on when it came to spending time with his father. Dennis told the police about something else in his father's life that they were bound to find out about anyway. Richard had been having an affair, and not a short-term one. He and a local real estate agent named Diana had been seeing each other for about eight years. Dennis knew about it. His sisters knew about it. Some business associates knew about it. Quite a few friends knew about it and more were learning about it in the last 12 months or so. But Connie, as far as her children knew, knew nothing, and they wanted to protect her from that heartbreak, and it seems like they had succeeded. As far as anyone knew, Connie had no idea. Dennis characterized his father's girlfriend Diana as a, quote, fatal attraction type, and said that she was hot-headed. About a year before Richard's death, Dennis did ask a friend and business associate of Richard's to intervene. Ideally, Richard would end the affair, but at the very least, I wonder if Dennis was hoping his father would go back to being more discreet. 
the friend never did talk to Richard about it, and Dennis never brought it up with him again. After Dennis told the police all of this, the questioning turned a bit more intense. Dennis was asked if he had any involvement in his father's death. Dennis said no, he had no reason to want his father dead. He was then asked if he knew anyone who would want Richard dead. And up to this point, Dennis had not been told how Richard died, just that he had. But with the police interviewing the family and then asking questions about enemies, anyone could see they were investigating a homicide. So Dennis started throwing out some speculation. Maybe it was a robbery. Maybe some jealous ex-girlfriend the family didn't know about. But still, he couldn't see Richard. No matter how many people in the world didn't like him, having an enemy to the level that they would have killed him. But maybe someone did feel pushed too far. The investigator then turned the interview back to Dennis's timeline. They told him they wanted to get it down as precisely as possible so that they could pull security camera footage in those areas and verify his movements. So Dennis went over his movements again about going to his father's office, then driving back to his own office to pick something up before driving back to his father's office. When he gave the addresses and streets that he drove on, it actually surprised the investigator a little bit. His office to his father's office was actually pretty close. He could have just walked there rather than walking down to the parking lot, getting in his car, driving, only to turn around and have to try to find parking again. Dennis explained that he drove in part because of the genealogy papers that he had in the car, but also in case Lisa called him and wanted him to come home, which is exactly what had happened. Dennis was also asked what he was wearing so that they could find him on the CCTV footage and know that was him. Dennis said he was wearing the same pants and shoes that he had on right then in the police station, a different dress shirt and a Navy blazer. Dennis kept going through his timeline, and the investigators would stop him every so often to get more details. Things like, why didn't he say hi to Lisa right away, but rather went upstairs to change first? Dennis said it was because he didn't see her in their house, and they had an open floor plan, so he assumed she was in the yard. So he went upstairs, changed, and then went outside to look for her. She wasn't in the yard, but as he walked back into the house, he saw that she was in the sunroom, and she was mad at him for taking so long coming home. For every question on his timeline, Dennis had an explanation. There was a break in the questioning, and then they went back through Dennis's timeline again. When he would seem confused, he would be drilled down on the details again and again. So then they did it again for the fourth time, and this time Dennis seemed more unsure, and he had to think about which streets he took to get back and forth and where he parked. When they took another break, Dennis sat alone in the room, trying to remember everything he did in the exact order, and you can hear him on the tape 
kind of talking himself through it. By taking breaks in the questioning and then having Dennis go through the timeline again, the police were trying to see if Dennis was just trying to recite some memorized alibi story or if this was really the truth. I will say that he was mostly consistent, but there were a few moments where he became unsure about things that he seemed sure about in the first or second timeline. After going over the timeline for the fourth time and taking another break, the investigators came back in and told Dennis that he was the prime suspect in the murder of his father. Dennis's rights were read and Dennis called his attorney and his attorney told him to do the only sensible thing at that point and that was to stop talking. He had already been talking for about two and a half hours, but now Dennis was not going to say another word. The constable kept trying, but Dennis refused to answer any questions. Another officer came in and he accused Dennis of murder, saying that Richard was a mean person who controlled the money and disrespected Dennis's mother. Maybe there was an argument over the money and Richard was pushing and rubbing it in Dennis's face that he, Richard, had all the control. But Dennis continued to do as his lawyer advised. He said nothing. Eventually, because Dennis was not under arrest, he was released. Something that surprised me, though, was that even though he claimed that the pants and shoes he was wearing in the police station were the same ones he wore to his father's office the night before, they did not take them into evidence. Dennis walked right out with them still on. It was late when Dennis left the station around 11 p.m., and the police surveilled him for the next week, but he didn't do anything suspicious in that time. In the meantime, they set about confirming or contradicting Dennis's timeline using witnesses and security footage. His wife confirmed the time he made it home and the police did pull security footage from the stores Dennis said he had shopped at, and they confirmed he was at the grocery store a little after 7.30. But there was other security footage that would contradict Dennis on a few points. For one thing, they found the footage of Dennis leaving his own office and heading to his father's office. But instead of wearing a navy blazer like he said, he was actually wearing a brown jacket. Dennis said he went to his father's office at 5.15 the first time and left soon after. Then he returned at 5.30 and left around 6.30. But there was footage from a nearby restaurant of a silver car resembling Dennis's driving up the street at 5.16, 5.18, and again at 5.22. Dennis would say that the repeated circling was due to him looking for a parking spot. The footage then showed that Dennis left his father's office holding a reusable grocery bag at 6.12. He crossed the street, then turned around and crossed back over, heading back towards his father's office. They then had some security footage of Dennis at his car. He opened and closed his hatchback, then got into the car and drove off. Now, these movements were left out of his statement to the police. 
Dennis had been clear that his wife called as he was leaving his father's office, and she called after 6.30 based on the phone records. So where was Dennis going at 6.12? I'm sure the police would have loved to ask him, but like I said, he had a lawyer at this point. It's really honestly too bad that the one camera at that restaurant across from Richard's office building was all they had because it really did have limited range. It didn't show the front of Richard's building, so they couldn't see if anyone else came or went after Dennis. But they continued to try to refine this timeline through witnesses, but then they ended up with more contradictions. One person interviewed was Diana, Richard's girlfriend. The two had a pretty active dating life in spite of his busy career and, you know, their respective spouses. They saw each other several times a week and even traveled together with an upcoming trip to Maine already booked. According to Diana, after eight years together, Richard was seriously considering divorcing Connie and marrying her, but he needed to get legal advice about it since he did have millions of dollars at stake. Diana said that she and Richard spoke every night at 6.30, but when she called him on July 6th, it went to voicemail. So she called again and again, and then she texted him. Along the lines of what Dennis said about her being hot-headed, these messages did start taking on an aggressive tone, and she sounded offended that Richard was ignoring her. So she ended up sending an angry text about him having his phone off, and she threatened to call his house. Then around 9.30 the next morning, Diana was going to a hair salon near Richard's office, and she saw all of the police cars outside. She texted Richard, what the hell is going on with you? And then later, she saw his car being towed from the office parking lot. She was worried something had happened, but she was thinking like a heart attack or a sudden illness. So she texted him that she loved him and she was praying for him and she had no idea at that point that he had been killed. The police asked Diana for her alibi for the late afternoon and night of the murder, and Diana said she was home with her husband. She was essentially alibying herself and her spouse. The two lived about 30 minutes from the crime scene. So these calls and texts did help build out the timeline a little bit. At 6.30, Richard was no longer answering his cell phone which was also missing from his office. Since Dennis left when his own wife called around 6.36, we have to say it is possible that Richard simply did not answer a call from his girlfriend in front of his son. But he kept not answering. The last time his phone successfully received a text was 6.44 p.m., at that point, the phone went offline, possibly destroyed. That is a narrow window for anyone other than Dennis to have killed Richard Oland. But then the police spoke with the people who worked at Printing Plus, the print shop right below Richard's office. Two men were working that night, John, the owner, and Anthony, who was an employee. 
they both heard six or seven loud pounding thumps from above, like someone had banged on the wall. They said that a shuffling noise followed. The two men looked at each other, but then the noises stopped. While these weren't common sounds to come from Richard's office, it wasn't unusual in a building. Someone could have been putting together a new desk or a new chair. It's not like they heard yelling or screaming. It doesn't sound like they heard any voices at all. John initially said the sounds occurred 30 to 45 minutes before a customer came in to send a fax. Checking the records, the fax was sent around 8.10 p.m., so we are looking in the 7.30 to 7.45-ish range. John would be less sure of this time later on. But his employee, Anthony, backed him up on this approximate time. He believed it was 7.30 to 7.45, but he admitted this was an estimate. Neither man looked at the clock. So Richard's phone, assuming the killer took and destroyed it, put the murder at happening probably before or around 6.30, which is when Dennis Oland was admittedly with his father. But then we have these ear witnesses who put the time at more like 7.30, when we know Dennis Oland was 20 minutes away because of the grocery store CCTV. This contradictory timeline would be a huge hurdle for the investigation to overcome, particularly as they continued to suspect Dennis. It was under the cloud of the investigation and the suspicion on Dennis that Richard's funeral was held on July 12th, with Dennis serving as a pallbearer. Over 450 people were in attendance, but the mayor of Rossay later told McLean's that in spite of these high attendance numbers, he didn't see people crying. It sounds to me like many were paying respects for the sake of the family or because it's the right thing to do, but not because they were mourning. So if the police were watching the crowd for their reactions to Richard's death, which I would hope they were, they didn't get much from them. But there was one person who saw something. She wasn't at the funeral, but she saw the news coverage about it and called the police. The woman saw Dennis Oland as a pallbearer, and she recognized him. She said that it was on July 6th, the evening of the murder, when she was at the Riverside Country Club with her husband. She saw a man in a sports coat walking towards the Renforth Wharf. He was carrying a reusable grocery bag, and when she saw the funeral on TV, she recognized the man as Dennis Oland. As he walked towards the wharf, she said he stopped to pick something up off the ground before then looking towards the playground and then the lighthouse. He kept walking and sat down at the end of the wharf. He opened up the reusable plastic bag he was carrying and pulled out something red, which may have been a second bag, and he wrapped whatever he had picked up in the red item and then put it all back into this bigger bag. Then he got up and walked briskly to his car, which was a silver Volkswagen Golf, and then he drove off. 
Since Dennis had admitted he was at the wharf that night and the woman described the same make and model as his car, the police were sure this was an accurate sighting. Though the woman didn't report seeing the man do anything like throwing a cell phone into the water, the police did send divers down to see if any evidence could be found in the area of the wharf. Maybe the murder weapon, maybe the cell phone, maybe some other piece of evidence, but nothing was found. The police soon ended their surveillance of Dennis when they got a search warrant for his house on July 14th, one week after Richard's body had been found. In the time they had followed Dennis, they didn't see him attempt to get rid of any evidence. One notable item taken from the house was a brown jacket, similar to what it looked like Dennis was wearing when he was seen on the CCTV. It had a dry cleaning tag attached, and they also found a dry cleaning receipt from July 8th, the day after Richard's body was found. So the day after Richard's body was found, and after Dennis told them he wore a navy jacket, his brown jacket, the one he was really wearing, was dry cleaned. It wasn't the only item dry cleaned either. The receipt, which had Dennis's wife's name at the top, listed 19 items total. A number of other search warrants were issued for various computers, cell phones, Dennis's car, and his wife's sailboat. And all of this happened behind the scenes, with the media being given very few updates. Not to draw another comparison to the Barry and Honey Sherman case, but the police's strategy for dealing with the media was the same. Say little. And the press responded the same way it did in the Sherman case. After several months passed without any updates, they began filing for documents to be released to the public in spite of the court sealing many of them. And like with the Shermans, they were eventually successful in getting some information released, beginning in August 2012, over a year after Richard had been killed. I think the most interesting thing that came out of the first release of information was that the public learned the reason the investigation had seemingly stalled. They had a large amount of forensic evidence they were testing, and those items could only be processed so fast due to staffing and resources. Of 243 pieces of evidence marked for forensic analysis, about 200 of them were still waiting. Then eight months after this first release of information, it was made public that Dennis Oland had been the prime suspect. Obviously, the family already knew this. In addition to Dennis being told he was the prime suspect during his interview, the police had turned down a family-funded reward. The Olins wanted to post a reward for information leading to Richard's killer in late September 2011, but the police turned them down because they felt it was unethical to have the family post a reward given that a family member, Dennis Oland, was the prime suspect. Some neighbors had also guessed that Dennis was a suspect since they saw the massive eight-hour search of his house a week after the murder. 
But then when nearly two years passed without any more movement, I know that I would have assumed they had cleared him. But he hadn't been cleared. And this new information about Dennis being a suspect included the information that he said he wore a navy blazer when he had actually been seen on security cameras in a brown one. Also trickling out around this time were reports that the police used a forensic accountant to go over Dennis's finances, which were frankly a bit grim at the time, and that Richard and Dennis argued. Over the summer of 2013, with two years passing without an arrest and a trickle of information coming out, rumors about what happened and who may have done this spread through town. Pretty much everyone suspected someone, whether it was a business deal gone wrong, a love affair turned ugly, or a family member with a financial motive. In October 2013, a judge allowed the release of even more information regarding the forensic testing that the police had done, though he still wouldn't release details about the crime scene. So here's what we know about the forensics. Hair-like fibers were found in Richard's hand, but they lacked a root. At the time, DNA testing on rootless hair was impossible, though that has since changed in 2019. As for other DNA, Richard Olin's clothing and body contained no DNA of anyone except himself, and this includes fingernail scrapings. And while it's not far-fetched that someone could have committed this murder without leaving their DNA at the site, you'd have to assume they took Richard's DNA with them in the form of blood. This was both a blunt and sharp force death. There was blood spatter on nearly every surface in the office. Whoever did this would not have avoided getting that blood on them. Testing of Dennis Olin's car showed no signs of blood, which would have been remarkable if he had gotten into it after killing his father. The reusable grocery bag that Dennis had carried in and out of his father's office, as confirmed by the CCTV, also had no blood on it. Dennis's clothing yielded mixed results. Testing several items of clothing from the house and multiple pairs of shoes gave them nothing. It was only the brown jacket that gave them anything. Though it had been dry cleaned, there were small blood stains on the right sleeve, upper left chest, and along the hem in the back. The DNA testing matched the stains to Richard. These were small stains, and I mean very small, nearly invisible. The police had been sending items to the lab in order of priority and the likelihood that something would be found on it. The jacket was not among the first things sent because the blood stains were not noticed. The dry cleaner later said that when he looked over the items Lisa dropped off for stain treatment, he didn't see these stains and therefore did no special treatment on them. A forensic expert handling the jacket who was specifically looking for the spots, had missed one of them twice. 
But these small spots of Richard's DNA on a jacket that Dennis owned and was likely wearing on the day of the murder was what they had. And in November 2013, Dennis Oland was charged with second-degree murder. The Crown did not have the evidence of premeditation required for a charge of first-degree. Dennis was then held in custody for a week until his hearing, at which time he was granted bail, paid for by Richard's brother, Derek. The Olins presented a united front. Dennis was innocent. In May 2014, a preliminary hearing was held to determine if there was enough evidence here to go to trial. The court issued a publication ban at the time, so none of this was made public until later when that ban was lifted. The Crown presented their motive for this brutal murder. Money. Richard had it, a lot of it, and Dennis needed it. Dennis had bounced his most recent loan repayment check to his father, and his bank account was overdrawn by $2,000. And Dennis was already a month behind on repayments, so this put him two months in arrears. Dennis was outspending his income, and not by a little. He had used credit to make up for this gap until the payments on those debts were just added to the bill for the month. Eventually, Dennis got himself in a position where he needed about $14,000 more a month than he made. That would cover both his bills and his spending. The Crown argued that Dennis's spending was, frankly, reckless, given this deficit. In the six months prior to Richard's death, Dennis spent 20 k on overseas travel. The Crown's theory was that Dennis didn't go to see his father to talk genealogy, or not to only talk genealogy. He waited until they were alone in the office to ask his father for another loan. This sparked an argument between the two of them that escalated until Dennis murdered his father in a rage, as evidenced by the overkill. The defense argued that the police had tunnel vision. The little evidence they had that pointed to Dennis Oland was because that was the only direction they were looking. The judge presiding over this hearing was not entirely persuaded by the Crown's arguments. There was zero evidence that Dennis asked or planned to ask his father for money that day, which meant there also wasn't evidence that Richard turned him down, which meant there also wasn't evidence that it led to an argument. I think the judge here would like our ripples of speculation analogy, where you have the evidence and you go out one ripple of speculation from the evidence, but beyond that, you're speculating based on speculation. And that was what the Crown was doing here. The judge also pointed out that Dennis didn't really benefit financially from his father's death. The will was set up so the estate was in trust for Connie. Aside from a payment for being co-executor of the will, Dennis and his siblings wouldn't get anything until after their mother died. Another point the judge seemed to agree with the defense on was about the suspicion on Dennis Oland. He remained the prime suspect even when there wasn't much evidence to support it. The judge said, quote, the police merely had a hunch 
and an unsubstantiated one at that. So those are the points towards the defense. As for the neutral evidence, the judge seems to put Dennis's jacket in this category. Yes, it had some small stains that matched Richard's DNA. That's certainly suspicious. But it's also a very small amount for such a bloody crime. And why did Dennis keep the jacket? rather than throw it away when he allegedly got rid of the iPhone and the murder weapon and whatever other clothes he must have had blood on. Now that said, Dennis was the last person to see his father alive. He did lie, or at the very least was mistaken, about the color jacket he was wearing, and then Richard's blood was found on the jacket that he was actually wearing and there was no evidence anyone else was in the building after Dennis left. No DNA, no signs of a break-in, no witnesses, and no theft other than the cell phone. The judge decided that there was enough here to go to trial. This hearing was not looking for evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. That's for the trial court. This was just about whether or not they had enough to go to trial, And maybe I'm reading into it a little bit, but it sounds to me like the crown just barely squeaked by. And with the preliminary hearing done and a trial set, we do have pre-trial motions. A lot of them had to do with some alleged mistakes made by the St. John police in the investigation. One issue was the warrants. For example, the search warrant for Dennis's work computer expired before they seized it. And then there was the brown jacket. It was taken into evidence within the time frame of the search warrant on the house. But by the time they tested it, the forensic warrant had expired. The work computer wasn't as big of a deal for the defense, but of course the brown jacket was. Without that, the Crown had no forensic evidence linking Dennis to the crime scene. Of course, his defense wanted it kicked out, even if The only way they could get it kicked out was based on some overlooked paperwork. But the Crown argued that the actual search warrant gave permission to test any of the evidence they collected. It wasn't just the forensic warrant that gave them the right to do that. And since they seized the jacket within the time frame on the warrant, Dennis's rights were not violated. Or if they were, it wasn't such a violation that the jacket should be excluded. The judge agreed with the crown and the jacket was in. It's interesting to think that if this jacket was not allowed in, I don't know that this trial would have gone forward. The jacket was the strongest piece of evidence the crown had when they took 47-year-old Dennis Olin to trial in September 2015. But focusing on the mistakes of the police in these pretrial motions is foreshadowing what we are going to see at trial. And that is where we are going to pick up in part two. And you do not want to miss it because the legal proceedings are going to bring us deeper into the forensics. They're going to stir up new evidence and they're going to take a really hard look at the investigation of one of New Brunswick's most high profile murders. Thank you for listening. You can find Crime Lines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and occasionally TikTok. 
Crime Lines is on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. If you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crime Lines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an allegedly funny history, mystery, and true crime show that I co-created and write for. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.